Hey everyone, it is late at night and I am Norman, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Late Night Watch Talk podcast, where I hang out and I talk to you about watches. This episode should be pretty exciting. The Serica has finally arrived, and that is what is on my wrist tonight. This watch is absolutely amazing. Ever since it arrived, it has not left my wrist even for a moment, which is amazing because I'm a dress watch person, as most of you already know, and this is pretty sporty, but yet not. It's kind of a weird in-between, almost like the uh, Christopher Ward C65 Trident, where it has elegant, classy elements to it that kind of elevate it beyond just a sports watch. It's not really dressy, but it's not really sporty either. It's sort of like a dressy sports watch. And one thing that I really, really love about Serica is I feel like even though they only have two models so far, both of them already have kind of a personality to them. So Serica watches already have their own look and feel to their watches, which is just amazing. You glance at one of their watches and you immediately know that that is a Serica watch. So this particular piece is the Black Dial 5303. It's their first dive watch. And the amazing thing is this has 300 meters of water resistance, which is pretty phenomenal. So the dial is all black. Uh, it has dot indices on it, but it has each one has lines that go out to the outside of the dial. So it has a very kind of Jetsons look, which was one of the things that really drew me to this watch when it first came through my feeds. Another thing that is phenomenal about this watch is the bezel. So the bezel is actually two-tone. If you haven't seen these, the outside of it is black and it has just a normal, you know, minutes dive bezel markers on it. But the inside is brushed metal and it has hour markers on it. So you can use this as either a dive watch bezel or as a GMT bezel. And it gives it almost like a pull router kind of aesthetic to it, which is very cool because... As I'll discuss later in this episode, the pull router is off to be serviced. So in the meantime, I have something with sort of a similar aesthetic, only it's much more sporty, much more dive watch style, but something that I can be excited about and wear in the meantime until my baby comes home. The crown on this watch is great. It's kind of, it kind of sticks out a little bit. And it reminds me a bit of the Sandhurst's crown. It's really, really cool looking. Now, one thing about that, though, is my understanding is there's an issue with the crown. And so Serica is requesting that I believe even if it's behaving uh, properly, uh, they're going to have requests that you send the watch in to have a part added to it. And this isn't really on Serica. I believe it's more on the watch movement side there. So this would be a Newton issue. Uh, that's the movement that's inside this watch. The hands on this watch are painted white in contrast to the black dial. And the hour marker is a triangle marker, which at first was kind of jarring to me. I've never really been a fan of triangle hands. 
but this one is nice and sharp and the more I look at it, the more I realize that it really is the perfect choice for this watch. It looks absolutely brilliant on it. Now the 12, 3, 6, and 9 markers are thick batten markers and there is a minutes track around the edge of the dial. At the top, right next to the 12 marker, are two dot indices, right up next to it. And the only piece that's loomed in the bezel is a pip at 12 o'clock. So you can still use that bezel, it just doesn't have glowing numbers on it, so you'll have to kind of estimate where it is if it's really, really dark. But honestly, as much as I appreciate loom and whatnot, I find that when I actually need to use the loom on a watch, it's already dead and pretty much useless. I mean, I pretty much have to have a source of light to be able to read the dial anyway. So I'm not really stressed about the numbers not being um, loomed at all in the bezel. And secondly, if I am diving with this watch, one, I'm not a diver, but if I was a diver and I was diving with this watch, most likely I would also have a diving calculator. And if things are very dark and my loom has already faded, I'm still all good. But most likely this watch is going to be used snorkeling and whatnot. So it's going to be light out. I'm going to be in shallow water, probably really clear water. So it's not going to be an issue at all. The crystal on this watch is sort of like a box crystal and yet not so it kind of transitions slower than a box crystal and it really isn't very tall at all but it's just enough to give it some distortions around the edge which are really fun and part of the reason why i love box crystals so much so it really gives this watch a cool aesthetic that you wouldn't have with just a flat crystal or even a domed crystal it's it's absolutely amazing. The lugs on this watch are something that I didn't really notice until it arrived. So the very top of the lugs is brushed, but there's like an angle to them that kind of expands from the case out to the end of the lugs so that by the end by the end of the lug this uh, surface is taking up the entire width of the lug and that surface is polished. So light really plays off it really well. And again, it kind of gives it an elegant, almost dressy touch to it. The edge of the bezel is kind of a coin texture there and it is also polished. So even more light plays off of this watch and it just looks absolutely amazing. And another rock star of this watch is definitely the strap. It's a Milanese strap or bracelet, whichever you prefer, but it has end links on it, which gives it a really, really unique look. All of the Milanese straps that I've had are just like standard ends on them. So the, there's just an end there where the spring bar goes through it, but this has an end link and then a link in between that's narrower and then that joins up to another link that's full width and the Milanese is attached to that. And honestly, when I first saw this watch, that was one of the things that caught my attention was the unique look of this strap. It tapers all the way down to 16 from 20, which is absolutely amazing and kind of 
helps to enhance its uh, retro vibe. And another thing that's really unique and functional about this strap is you don't have like a fixed um, clasp to it. So most Milanese straps, you have sort of a fixed car or whatever you want to call that. And you actually have to have a tool of some sort to pry open the lock on that. Usually I just use like a thumbtack or something and I put it in the little square that's on there and I'll pry that open, slide it to where I need it, and then you have to push really hard to get it to lock back down. This watch doesn't even have one of those. So this strap, sorry. So all it has is the buckle and the buckle serves the purpose of that car that's usually in a Milanese strap. So you slide the strap up underneath that buckle so you don't have any overhang. So if you have a small wrist, there's nothing flapping anywhere. It's up underneath the bracelet so you can't even see it. And you just lock that clasp wherever you want it. So it's constantly able to do any kind of micro adjustment you want which is absolutely phenomenal. You can get this thing exactly how snug you want it. And if throughout the day it gets hot out and your wrist expands, you can simply pop your clasp open and slide it out a little bit and the watch now fits perfectly still. So this is just absolutely amazing. And the attention to detail on this watch is just phenomenal. After I had had it for a couple days, I took it off and was just kind of looking at it because I'm weird and that's what I do with all my watches. I'll be sitting around and decide to take it off the wrist and just sit there staring and drooling over my own watch. And I noticed that even underneath the case, there's really cool design choices. So the lugs actually curve in underneath so they make kind of like a rounded shape like a bowl which is really really cool also right before the so the case back is pretty much flat it's a screw down case back as you would expect with 300 meters of water resistance but it's flat and so the case itself kind of comes up to meet it but where it does that it has kind of a concave shape to it, which is actually super cool. And I've never seen such a shape on the back of a case before. It's, oh, it's so cool. Um, but as I mentioned, there are some issues with the crown and my particular watch. Um, somebody who uh, saw it on YouTube, saw my video that I did on it, uh, pointed out how the minutes hand bends toward the dial, which is not uncommon. I've had watches with all kinds of bizarre hands to them. The Zeno Bauhaus Winder, for example, the hands on that watch kind of angled up toward the crystal and then shot straight out. Um, so they looked really weird. You would see it at different angles and they would look crooked and whatnot. So I didn't think anything of it when I kind of saw this curve here. I just figured that's the how the hands are. But somebody called out that they've seen pictures of other people's Serica's where the hand is straight. The minute's hand is just straight out and doesn't curve in. So I've reached out to Serica uh, about the hand because 
I mean, it does look a little weird, so if it's supposed to be straight, it would be cool to have a straight hand on there so it doesn't look like it's kind of kinked or whatever. So at some point here, um, it's probably gonna go away for a little while. I'm hoping that I'll get some time with it before that happens though, because it's still new to me. I'm still super excited about it and anxious to give it even more wrist time. And the hands aren't interfering with one another or anything, so there's no real hurry uh, in my mind for sending it off. I think uh, I'm totally okay with wearing it and enjoying it for a while. And, and that'll give Serica some time. I mean, they just released this watch and with the whole crown thing, I'm sure they're slammed and probably a bit overworked and whatnot. So I'm totally cool waiting until they would like me to send it in. But I really think this watch might be the dive watch that ends up sticking around in my collection. I've had a number of dive watches, and honestly, this watch is almost like a culmination of the best parts of all of those watches. So for instance, the Christopher Ward C65 Trident. That watch had such brilliant case design. I mean, Christopher Ward is so good at their case designs, it's not even funny. And this watch kind of has a touch of that. It may not be to the exact level that the C65 was, but it's really close. And both of the designs, the, the C6, or this, the, sorry, the Trident and this watch, both the design elements of, of each of those really elevates the classiness of the watch. Also, the C65 had an amazing box crystal, and this being sort of like an in-between, uh, I would count this as having a similarly brilliant crystal. So those are two elements of the C65, as well as the angled bezel. So the C65's bezel kind of angled down toward your wrist, which helped to give the watch a thinner appearance. So it looked a lot thinner than it actually is. And this watch has a similar angle to its bezel, which was my only real criticism of the Baltic. It had a flat bezel on it, which kind of made the watch look really tall and um, kind of top heavy. It Like when you looked at it from the side, it was narrow at the wrist, but with that flat bezel that kind of had an overhang to it, it looked really wide and flat on the top and small on the bottom, which was kind of weird. Uh, but again, that was only noticeable from side view or really sharp angles. From the top, it looked brilliant. And another watch that, that I think this has some elements of that I have owned in the past that was brilliant isn't a dive watch, but is the Christopher Ward Sandhurst. And its crown was absolutely amazing. And this watch has a similarly really cool looking crown to it. I actually like the way the crown kind of sticks out on this watch. It's not really flush. It doesn't have crown guards. It is screw down. And actually you have to screw it quite a bit to get it screwed in, which is probably good. It, it gives it, a, it's very secure, very strong, kind of reinforced. So you don't really, I don't think you really need crown guards on it. I think it's pretty tough as it is. Also with the Sandhurst, there was brilliant use of brushed and polished finish on the case. 
And we see that similar um, aesthetic with this watch. Like I mentioned with the lugs, that's probably where it shines the most. The lugs are just gorgeous. Yes, it's kind of a large surface area, so it's going to get scratched up. It'll have hairline scratches all over it in no time. But even when that happens, it's still going to be capturing light and just really adding to the aesthetic of this watch. And just like uh, the Sandhurst, like I've mentioned also with the C65, this has sort of a touch of dressiness to it. Just absolutely amazing. Now, another watch that this kind of is a, a culmination of was the Genot. And the Genot, uh, as you probably already know, is an homage to vintage mill spec or mill subs. Um, so it had like sword hands, but it was basically a Submariner homage. And uh, like I've mentioned, anytime I've brought this watch up, I ended up getting rid of it because the company is seedy. Uh, I got tired of hearing people going off every time I posted pictures of it. And then after doing research into the company and realizing that they're actually still producing fake Rolexes. And not only that, but the Genot is probably comprised of parts that are used for those as well. I had to get rid of it. But it was a brilliant watch. Definitely probably one of the best um, fakes slash homages out there today. Um, but the thing about that watch was the water resistance was great. And it had solid, true diver DNA to it. And I feel like this watch has that as well. With the C65 Trident, it almost felt like a dive style watch to me. And the Baltic had its really unique look to it and everything, but I feel like this, kind of like the Genot, has sort of like the stereotypical, the classic, like dive watch DNA. Like this is one of the most unique dive watches I've ever seen, but the DNA in it is solidly like classic dive watch. Also interesting, is an, another watch that this kind of reminds me of is another non-dive watch that I've owned in the past, and that was the Certina. Mainly because the Certina also had a silver ring around the edge of the dial, kind of like this bezel with its silver ring on the inside of the dial. So there's kind of a touch of that aesthetic as well. And the Certina kind of had almost a pull routery feel to it, which is why I bought it. And there... Again, there is that touch to this watch as well, which is super cool because, as you know, the pull router is my grail watch. I absolutely love its aesthetics. And so having a little tiny bit of that in this watch is super, super cool. And lastly, I've mentioned it a bunch, but this also has aspects of the Baltic to it, namely in the crystal. So the Baltics crystal is just phenomenal. If you haven't really looked at those watches, do an image search and check out that crystal. And trust me, in person, it's, it's even cooler. So the crystal on those, kind of like this watch, isn't really a box crystal. Uh, with the Baltic, it's almost like a high-domed crystal, 
but then it goes flat in the middle. And so you get all kinds of really amazing distortions to it. And I feel like this crystal here is sort of like a Morbox crystal and subtler variant of that Baltic crystal. And even though this is subtler, more tame, it's still absolutely amazing in person. So as I've mentioned, the movement inside this watch is the Newton movement. And what's crazy about this movement is it came out in 2020, which is pretty amazing. And I didn't realize until I received this watch, but the movement actually has a unidirectional um, automatic rotor in there. So kind of like a Miyota movement, you'll feel it wiggling on your wrist every now and then. But unlike Miotas that I've experienced in person, this one is really quiet. It took me a couple days to realize that it was a unidirectional rotor, and I only noticed it because I felt it wiggling a bit. And so I tried going online to confirm it, uh, and I didn't find anything on it. When you look up the movement, is at least from articles that I've seen, no one mentioned the unidirectional rotor. And it's not mentioned on the uh, Newton spec pages or anything like that. But I've since kind of taken the watch off and tested it. And sure enough, yeah, I've gotten it to where it starts uh, spinning freely. Um, so it's definitely unidirectional. Uh, but it's super accurate. It's been running for a few days now and it's still within the minute. It's, you know, maybe maybe uh, 15, 20 seconds off. Uh, just phenomenal. It's absolutely dialed in. And the, the power reserve, 44 hours, is awesome. That is so cool. And apparently it's, it's an actual new movement. It's not based on prior Soprod movements. So the brand that puts this out is Soprod. And I don't know a ton about the brand yet or their movements, except that the goal is to make a precision, competitive, yet affordable alternative to like ETA movements. Um, and I don't recall offhand the exact ETA movement that this is kind of similar to. Um, but yeah, it's kind of an alternative to ETA or Salida. And so far... So far, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Like, this is a great movement. I think in the near future, I'll have to do a deep dive on this movement and the brand. I've already been doing a little bit of reading, but I haven't put together any notes just yet. If you actually watch my channel at all, keep your eyes open for that because I feel like this movement is definitely, this movement and or the brand will definitely be up-and-comers in the future. I think we'll start to see micro-brands using this movement, um, using Soprod movements, I think. That is my prediction, especially with ETA being difficult to obtain, you know, as they're uh, pulling back the availability of their movements for other brands outside of the Swatch Group and stuff. You know, a lot of brands are using Miotas or Salitas, think we're going to see Soprod start to uh, fill in that void as well. I haven't yet put it on the Timographer. And part of that is I, I think I'm going to take a few of my watches that I haven't um, done any readings of. And I might do that on video 
and just kind of do a reaction to how my various watches are performing. So I'll put like the Nomos on there, the Stova watches that'll be really interesting to see uh, how precise they're running, how well they're running, because they're, you know, uh, those ones are the 7001 or based on that, um, like the Nomos uh, based on the 7001. And maybe I'll put some of my really cheap watches on there as well. I've done a couple of them. And as you would expect, they're running like way off um, half a minute or so a day. Uh, but most of them looked fairly healthy. You know, there'd be a nice straight line on the readout. And uh, the amplitude actually surprisingly uh, decent on those. But it'll be interesting to put some of the higher end pieces on there and see how they're doing. Maybe the Longines Dolce Vita put that on there too, because I have no idea what that's going to look like on a time grapher. But yeah, as I mentioned, the pull router is off for servicing because I had worn it for a few days after I got it and it stopped. That is not good. So the base servicing, uh, I sent it off to TikTok watch repairs uh, because I'm happy with what they've done so far for me. I mean, I haven't had them do much, just clean up a crystal and whatnot, but the pricing for that was really good. And so I figured I would uh, go with them, see how they do with this. And because that movement is so old, you know, somewhere around 1955, the base price on that's pretty spendy. It's a few hundred. And if they have to replace pieces like the automatic works, that's going to double that price. And that has me a bit nervous since the watch just stopped after wearing it for a few days. I'm guessing that it is the automatic works, uh, either that or there's something up with the mainspring or something. Um, I am not a watchmaker at all, even though I watch hours of uh, watchmaking videos pretty much every day. So I'm at least familiar with the parts and some of the things that uh, watchmakers encounter when they dive into movements, but I am not a watchmaker so who knows what it could be those are the only two things that i'm aware of personally and so i'm anticipating that service to be twice as much as just the base maybe even more if they have to source other parts i'm not sure where they would even get those uh, i'm hope i'm really hopeful that they are able to source any parts that need replaced in that and I'm also hoping that once I have this initial service done, if I keep up with servicing every few years or so, I'm hoping the price for that will be much less than this. You know, send it in and I have an idea that the movement's probably in pretty good shape. Maybe just needs uh, cleaned a little, double check the uh, oils and whatnot. And I'm hoping to keep my maintenance kind of low on that watch, but still be confident in its health. You know, I don't want something that I don't know going wrong in it and causing damage to other parts in the movement. So for my own peace of mind, I don't mind spending money and having that particular piece serviced way more often than I would my other watches. So far, my plan basically for servicing is to periodically put pieces on the time grapher and when they start looking like something's going wrong, you know, if the amplitude drops 
or the accuracy is quite a bit off compared to what it was in previous tests, uh, I'll probably consider a servicing forum or if a certain amount of years have passed, but I'm not sure I'm going to do as frequently as five years. We'll see. I may do something more like 10 years um, just because I have quite a few mechanical watches and that could be a pretty pricey thing to keep up. You know, I don't want to go too long, but I feel like 10 years might be okay. If there is an issue with it, hopefully it's not something that has been going on for long enough to cause any problems. You know, you see people doing like videos where they're repairing watches that probably haven't been serviced in 20, 40 years. And when they go in and, and start uh, disassembling and cleaning and stuff, they end up not having to replace any parts at all. Or maybe there's like a little broken piece of metal within one of the jewels and they just have to fish that out and everything's all good. Uh, I don't think I've really seen any videos where a piece has broken and caused damage to other pieces. I've seen where pieces are broken and the watch simply stops working or works very poorly. So I feel like 10 years is probably a decent amount of time for most of my watches. Except for the pole router. I'm going to do that one more frequently because that's my grail watch. And it's by far the oldest watch that I own. I think that a lot of my vintage Russian watches, even though they have mid-century aesthetics to them and stuff, when I do see dates associated with those, it's actually in the 80s. So they're nowhere as near as old as the pole router. So I will definitely treat that one with kid gloves and have it serviced far more often than my other pieces, I think. But I think that servicing could be up to six weeks, so uh, it's going to be a long wait. But uh, it's going to be awesome when it does get back because uh, that watch was so much fun to wear. I'm still, after all this time, you know, it's been a few weeks, month, or however long it's been, I'm still tripping on the fact that I own a pole router. So I'm super excited for when that comes back home. It's going to be a long six weeks. And that's why I was stoked that the Serica is here. Hopefully it doesn't have to go in the meantime. But because I own the pole router, I am now in saving mode. It was pretty crazy how empty my account got with just some of the uh, some of the things that I had to pay for for that. You know, once you add in tax and all that. So I, like I mentioned, that was actually a gift uh, from my wife. But I'm helping to pay for it because it's way more than she had allotted for me. So I'll be paying back the above and beyond on that and I already covered some of it in initially purchasing the watch. I covered the tax, the uh, um, the import fees and the shipping and whatnot and I'll be paying for the servicing. So right now I'm trying to hang on to whatever I can for the next uh, month or so so that I'll have enough to uh, pay for that and actually get the watch back so it's not just sitting there waiting for me to have the funds for it. So it'll be interesting. I won't really have a ton of new pieces coming in to review for here or the channel. 
So we'll be seeing some pretty um, inventive and creative content coming out, I think. So it'll be interesting. Although there is an affordable tank style watch that is on the way. I had to. I mean, it was under $100, and this piece is new. It's quartz, so the affordability may be due to that. I have no idea if it's going to end up like the Ericsson. And if you aren't already aware, I found the Ericsson tank watch somewhere in some feed. And I think, if I remember correctly, that was like a $30 watch, brand new. And when you look at pictures, it looks like it has kind of like a 1930s aesthetic to it. Almost a reverso-ish, but even more dressy. And so I was kind of excited to see what that would look like in person. And it turns out that those photos and stuff were kind of deceptive. The watch is far larger than it appears in those pictures. And it is an absolute brick. It's really thick. It does not contour to your wrist at all. And it has quite a wide lug-to-lug -lug, uh, distance on it. So it really enhances that brick shape of it. And that watch has gotten zero wrist time apart from just kind of sharing it with all of you out there showing you what it looks like in person, kind of doing a review of the piece. But I, I'm hopeful that this is a much more elegant watch. It kind of curves a bit more, and the proportions, at least on paper, look much better. It's a, a smaller tank watch. I feel like tank-style watches, you have to really watch the size on. Uh, they get large really fast which is interesting. I'm not sure exactly why that is the case, but a large tank watch is absolutely huge. Kind of like a Bauhaus watch with a cylinder-shaped case. Those get large really fast, which um, I'm sure I've talked about in previous episodes, but if you are on the hunt for a piece like that, if you're after a Bauhaus watch with a cylindrical case, definitely watch out for the case size. Uh, 38 might even be too large for those, seriously. Even if you like large watches, 38 is going to be huge for those. My Stova is 36, and I feel like it wears like a 40. So watch out for that in tank-shaped watches. You really want both of those styles to be on the smaller end. You know, just the opposite of a dive watch. You know, a dive watch... At 38, seems pretty small because of the bezel, right? So the dial is really tiny. Whereas when you get into dressy pieces, especially with the cylinder cases, it's the exact opposite effect. And it makes those just huge, huge. And again, same with the tank style watches. But when this watch arrives, we'll see. If I like it a lot, I'm thinking about getting a lizard grain strap for it. Something that's, you know, affordable because the watch is pretty much low end, just kind of a fun quartz piece, like my uh, Seiko, uh, Seiko quartz tank watches. You know, just pieces that are fun to uh, pick up off the shelf and wear for a day or so. Maybe even a couple days because those Seiko quartz watches look absolutely amazing. Seriously, I can't believe it. They're $20 watches. I think they're from the 80s or so. But they, they're kind of like um, Cartier's. They have a very similar aesthetic to them. And 
they they look absolutely great. I was surprised when I received those, and that's why I now own three of them. One in the blue dial, one in the white dial, and one in the black dial. And hilariously, my black dial one currently has my super high-end shell Cordovan strap on it. Mainly because those are some of the only watches I own that have 20 millimeter lugs, which is hilarious. Most people, you know, that's your sweet spot. Nearly all of your watches have 20 millimeter lugs on them. But in my case, probably 90 plus percent of my watches are 18 millimeter lugs. So in my uh, collection, finding 20 millimeter lugs is actually tough. So when those came in, I had nothing to put them on. All of my straps are 18 millimeters. So I dug that fancy thing out and put it on that. The other two, the blue dial is on Milanese. And what is my other one on? No, wait, the white dial is still on the Milanese. I think the blue is just on a cheap strap that I found. One of my like $20 genuine leather straps that I had that happened to be in 20 millimeter width. But so while I'm in saving mode, I think I might explore straps. It's been a while since I've uh, stocked up on new straps or buckles. I like to explore different want, uh, buckles so that I can do micro adjustments. So, and I'm really sad that uh, the watch band center, at least as of about a half a year ago, still isn't shipping to the U.S. Uh, thanks to all the crazy going on in the world you know what I'm talking about that thing that shall not be mentioned but I really like their buckles uh, those in my usual go-to were my favorites so um, but yeah I'll have to add some more buckles some more straps I'm the lizard that I'm considering for that quartz watch that I mentioned uh, I, I think I said it was affordable it's actually pretty decent quality so it's not super affordable it's not like the $20 leather straps that are out there I think this one's around 50 so I think it should be pretty decent which will be interesting because my only experience with lizard grain straps are cheap ones that came on watches like Marlins or that Reader's Digest watch that I got on eBay for uh, like 20 bucks or whatever it was so they're kind of stiff straps and I, I don't know what uh, lizard grain is like when you have a decent one. So it'll be cool to see that strap and oh, it's going to be 17 millimeters. That's another thing. That tank style watch has 17 millimeter lugs. So whatever straps I get for it are pretty much only going to be for that watch. I have absolutely nothing with an odd width like that. The Dolce Vita has 19, and I don't really want to squish an 18 millimeter in there just because I've tried that in the past, and it looked bulgy. So even though it's only, you know, a half a millimeter on each side, the strap kind of bulges out, and... Maybe other people wouldn't notice it, but every time I looked at my own wrist, that's all I could see is just the bulge in the strap. No good. Okay, so I'm going to end this episode with a completely off-topic subject. So when I'm not doing videos or these podcasts, 
to unwind, like on the weekends is usually when I do it. I make trip hop, um, acid jazz music. It's kind of like a psychedelia uh, lounge music with hip hop beats to it. And I make collages of videos for the music videos for those. So for each song that I make, I'll also make a music video. That way, um, if I ever am able to take this stuff live, which I would love to do, there's a couple really fun um, eclectic bars nearby. And I feel like this music would be just perfect, like sitting around with some cocktails or something, and maybe people would enjoy that. So I would like to try and do it live at some point. And my idea is I'm actually going to mix my videos and not my audio. So that's been an interesting challenge because I've yet to find any video like VJ apps that actually work without having to pay a ton of money for them. I'm looking for free stuff and I'm Linux based. I've tried a couple things and they just, they, I either couldn't get them to run at all, couldn't get them to compile at all, or they just didn't really work. And so I found a clever way of mixing them using VLC instances and stuff like that. So long story short, every song gets its own video. And for a while, I was posting those on YouTube so that other people can see them. And what I do is I just grab different clips from YouTube and just kind of mash them all, you know, sequence them all together in the songs and stuff. And they're, I thought they were pretty cool. They're, I mean, yes, I made them, but they're entertaining for me to watch even, you know, just kind of go over them. But so one of them got a copyright warning on it. And it was for the video where I used clips from the latest Blade Runner. So I found a trailer on YouTube and I just took clips of that and some other clips in there. And that one got a warning, which is fine. I had no plans for that channel ever being large. Right now it has like one subscriber and I'm pretty sure it's Nick. <laughs> the Nick that you all know. And each video gets probably four or five views at most. So I really wasn't concerned about that. But I put out a video where it was just collages of like masquerade ball footage and stuff like that. So I put in like clips from Labyrinth. There's like a huge clip of David Bowie in there and stuff. And that got a copyright strike, but not for Labyrinth. Hilariously. The piece, the clip that caused that strike was some weird, lame, made-for-television Cinderella movie or something. Hilarious. So when that came in, I was like, really? This is the thing that did it? I mean, I have clips from Aliens in there. I have clips from American Mary, uh, Pan's Labyrinth, Labyrinth, all kinds of stuff in there. Um, but no, 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 hold on. The warning, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I think I got another warning for the Cinderella one, but the strike, that's right. The strike was actually from a B-roll clip. So someone posted their B-roll um, project on YouTube and I used bits of that. That was where I got the copyright strike. I think I got a couple warnings, one for the made for television Cinderella and one for the Blade Runner one. And again, those... Um, there's no 
harm to you, no punishment or whatever. You just can never monetize those videos. But the copyright strike is scary because two more of those and my channel gets permanently shut down. And I'm not sure if that extends to other accounts that, you know, are kind of attached. So how you can switch from one account to another um, within YouTube without logging out. And so as soon as I got that, I pulled everything down because I don't want that affecting the uh, Killing Time channel at all. And uh, at some point, I'm going to have to go to copyright school so that it goes away in six months or something. But the upside of that is I've decided to play around with audio visualization stuff. So I've been goofing off in Blender, learning how to create animations where different aspects of them respond to the audio and that's actually been super fun because prior to a couple weeks ago or something I had zero idea how any of that was done and so it's kind of fun exploring that and I'm hoping I'll be able to build up to where I'm actually making full-on videos not just a looping an endless loop of whatever that responds to audio like you know the glowing of something that's like circling on the screen changes as the music does, you know, boring loops like that. I would like to make full on videos where maybe I create something that reacts to the music, take that and use that as a clip along with some others and, and whatnot, but totally off topic, but something that's kind of fun that I've been goofing off with lately. And, uh, in coming episodes, I'll be giving you some updates on the Serica, as well as the pull router. And once that tank style watch arrives, I believe in December, we'll be talking about that. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to the next episode chatting about watches with you. 